Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of April 6th, 2015. On this week's show, we'll talk about Wisconsin's upset victory over Kentucky and how the no longer undefeated Wildcats will be remembered. We'll also discuss the start of the baseball season and whether this is the year where everyone will ask whether this is the year that the Cubs will win the World Series. Finally, we'll be joined by Bob Christensen, a man who has written more than 20 sports television theme tunes to ask where the inspiration comes from to compose something like... Stefan, you want to help me out here? <laughs> joining me. That's good. That's good. Uh, joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic, and Acapella Sports Theme Tune Maestro. How are you, Stefan? I'm well. I don't know if you guys noticed, we got spam to the hangup at Slate.com account from Stavros Fermos, which I think Mm -hmm. is now going to be Stefan's alter ego. (laughs) 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 Like if you have a particularly strong take on something, that's going to be Stavros Fermos. Oh, I thought it would be more like when he's a little irrelevant and off topic and something we don't want to hear. It would be like, um, you're Stavros Fermosing it. (laughs) It's a very versatile spam uh, pseudonym. I think, you know I think we can just I think we can just have fun with it. How do you know it wasn't me <laughs> spamming you? We're through the looking glass. Because there, there, there were no references to Scrabble. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with us from New York is Mike Pesca, host of Slate's Daily Podcast, The Gist with Mike Pesca. Yeah. Mike, what's your spam? What's your mi, spam mi, name? Mikos Peskos. <laughs> we're all Greek. And spam. All spam names are Greek. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how is Chicago? It was good. It's I, I find the town to be what's the word? Toddlin. What? 
that toddlin town. Oh, you know, you never heard about Chicago being a toddlin town? I thought it, I thought it was like T O D L I N. Do the do the listeners know what Mike Pesca was doing in Chicago? Uh, I was, what were you? was hosting. Wait, wait, don't tell me. And looking askance at the uh, the, the mayor's Scance. race. I'm calling bullshit on the Scance. mayor's race. If you were looking at sconce. I was eating a sconce while looking askance. All right. All That's right, right. Stavros. Let's, uh, let's, let's move along. That's right, from Russ. Um, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week, we are going to check uh, Polo off of the hang-up bingo card. Um, <laughs> the hang-up hang bucket list. <laughs> we're going to be joined by a uh, star of the U.S. Polo team. He's going to discuss the U.S.'s second-place finish at the recent Polo World Championships. If you want to hear uh, – if you want to ch- check Polo off your personal – Hang up and listen. Bingo card. You got to be a Slate Plus member. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Get access to this and other podcast bonus segments on um, Hang Up and the Gab Fests and other Slate podcasts. You can get a free two-week trial. So if you're not sure about this whole polo thing, um, you can get, you, you know, you can you can try it out for a couple weeks. Um, slate.com slash hangupplus. Stefan's nodding. Polo's, polo's worth trying. Slate Plus. <laughs> it's worth if I were going to sign up for Slate Plus, it would be the week that there was a polo segment. Uh, that's a ringing endorsement if I've ever heard one. Um, on Saturday night in Indianapolis, Wisconsin outscored Kentucky 15-4 to in the uh, last six minutes to win the second of two national semifinals, 71-64, to set a Monday night's national championship game against Duke. The Badgers' upset victory ended uh, Kentucky's season at 38-1, and two games short of college basketball's first 40-0 season, stopping them from becoming the first men's team to end the season without a loss since the 1976 Indiana Hoosiers. Uh, we're recording this podcast on Monday morning before Wisconsin plays Duke, um, but the Badgers win and the Kentucky loss give us more than enough to talk about. This was in the same genre as the Kentucky-Notre Dame game. Close, extremely well-played, um, great game. You had one of the best offenses in modern history and the best defense in modern history. If you go by Ken Palm and the offense went out for Wisconsin, Mike. Yeah. Well, I, um, I said on MSNBC that this was about heart and resilience. And I, I prefaced But that was just for MSNBC. What would you say on NPR, though? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what would you say on Fox? On NP- <laughs> that it was about NPR, the free said, market at, at work. <laughs> uh, yeah. On NPR, on NPR, I said it was a clear uh, reference to the later works of uh, Carl Heisen. <laughs> I, I think that it was. like This is what I want to get to. We could talk about all the uh, the schemes. We could talk about the fact that uh, Wisconsin had a lot of tall guys who drew the uh, Kentucky guys away from the basket, but also who can shoot it from the outside and can, you know, break down their man individually on the dribble. And we could talk about how Decker was shooting out of his head. Yet on this, so on this show, we always decry cliches, and yet I really do think that a bunch of other teams, um, Ole Miss took him to double overtime, and Georgia that was, was playing Texas close. And Notre- took him to double overtime. Oh, oh Texas A&M took him to double overtime. Ole Miss had a shot at beating him. Um, I really do think that. You know, we okay, fine. It's not always true, and every time someone comes back, it doesn't. It's not some necessarily a triumph of believing in yourself. But I really felt it in this game. You know, I don't know if we could prove it. I think it is true in college basketball that emotions are a huge part of the game, and I do think that other teams have been in this position and wilted, like psychologically a little bit wilted. Kentucky always believes in itself. You got to find a team that believes in itself, maybe more than Kentucky. And when Wisconsin went down, didn't we all say this is the position? 
position we've seen, and this is where Kentucky wins again, and this is why the people who aren't reading Ken Palm think they're perfect, but we know they're undefeated, but they still have this quality of being able to kind of psychologically, if not physically, crush the opponent. And I was unbelievably impressed with Wisconsin's psychology in that whole game. Well, everyone has been just fascinated by this Wisconsin team in terms of um, you know, how much fun they seem to be having. They're winning all the press conferences as well as the games. Um, you know, it's not just Nigel Hayes and the sonographer, Kaminsky, Decker. They all just seem to really like each other and be having a good time. And um, it's nice when the cliches seem to manifest the, themselves on on the court because this is a team that's been playing together for a long time, seems to play in harmony, which is manifested in the fact that their points per possession is outrageous. It's like um, 1.25 or something crazy. Right. And this plays into the kind of trope that we've seen in college basketball over the last, you know, 10, however many years, the Calipari and Memphis and Kentucky eras that you often see these games towards the end of the season where it's the hyper-talented, inexperienced, one-and-done team versus the more experienced, you know, been-there-before group. And and I don't think you can come to any conclusions about which model is better and which one wins more often. We have examples either way. But Wisconsin's the rare team that has a huge amount of talent, like Decker and Kaminsky are both top 15 picks, and has been together for a long time. It's not like the Wichita State model of guys who've played together for a while and maybe are are not quite as, as talented. Level. Right, yeah. right, right. And, but I think Mike has a point, though. I thought in the last six minutes of that game when Kentucky missed, what was it, nine shots in a row, I did feel like emotional changes. And I did look at the Kentucky players on the bench and did see heads hung and Calipari looking kind of freaked out. Didn't the New York Times do a, a piece a couple months ago, a few months ago, about facial expressions and how NBA teams are analyzing um, the facial expressions of college players and weighing that as part of their draft strategies? I mean, I think there is mm-hmm. something to this the, the notion of emotional swings in sports and being able to read the emotional content of an athlete as he's performing to get clues as to how things are going. And I thought we clearly saw that toward the end of the game. Well, Kentucky in 2012, if I'm remembering right, when they won the the title, Calipari's uh, first and only, had a huge lead against Kansas and kind of sat on the lead and just stalled the ball and just almost blew the game. And Nate Silver had an analysis of that in 538, talking about once Kentucky got their four-point lead, they just kind of stopped playing the way that they had all game. And it's similar to how Notre Dame lost the game against Kentucky, where you do something that's working all game, you get the lead and you're like, well, we've got to change now because we have the lead. We're going to take more time off the clock. We're going to play more one-on-one and have, whether it's Jaron Grant or you know one of the Harrison twins, break down the defense one-on-one. I don't know if that sends a message to your team that, okay, we're going to go away from what's been working all game now um, because this is now the time to well, strategies, win the game. Strategies do change uh, over the course of the game, but in this case, what happened was as the as the shot clock wound down, 
they kind of panic. They didn't get good shots because of Wisconsin's great defense because Wisconsin packs the middle and and protects the arc too. You're kind of playing into Wisconsin's strength and Correct. Kentucky's weakness. And then I think after the after the first shot clock violation, that had to have affected the mentality of the players. And after the second one, I think you could say, oh, they're screwed now. I mean, they were so panicked um, during those three possessions toward as the shot clock was about to run out. Well, um, I, it wasn't just that they got bad shots. It's those three possessions where they got no, no shot, essentially no shot and shot clock violations. And that is so unbelievably impressive. And this year, Nate Silver, writing in 538, pointed out that, you know, Coach Cal Blewett was the name mm-hmm. of his headline. It was all about milking the clock and a reduction in offensive efficiency. But I would say to, look, Nate and I would both agree, for instance, that teams should go two for one with 50-something seconds left in the half. No team did it. Even, you know, you watch these the praise for Tom Izzo, the praise for Bo Ryan. Neither of his teams went two for one. It's just a fundamental thing. And I know in college ball, you play whatever, 30 games and there's only one half as opposed to pro ball, 80 games with, you know, four quarters. But I I never see college teams going two for one. So that is a coaching quote unquote mistake. But the reason they don't do it is this is the way there is a benefit to consistency, especially with younger players. And I think that that could defend Calipari a little bit. Look, they've won the games using this method. Have they won it using this wrong method? I mean, it's nice to know what you're going to do. It's nice to know that we're going to do the sit on the lead strategy. And by the way, if they had stopped Wisconsin, it was working up to a point. Yeah, they got really bad shots on a bunch of possessions, but they also didn't get stops on the other. What Nate determined was that by reducing their own offensive efficiency, even by a little bit, it reduced their their chances of winning the game by a lot more. And I think that's the that yes. was the point of, of Nate's article. Well, Aaron Harrison also had won them all those games in the NCAA tournament last year with these crazy bailout, end of shot clock, end of game shots. And so, um, you know, in, in a game this close, you can just nitpick and point to, for example, the refs making that really bad call mm-hmm. on what should have been a shot clock violation for Wisconsin. It's a, all about shot clock violations. A, a basket that, that tied the game. So we can, um, you know, talk about coaching decisions, refereeing decisions, all of them had an effect. And and we can choose to parcel out the amount of blame uh, as we desire. And then you know what else had an effect? The fact that they only look at replay under <laughs> two minutes and that with 235. God damn it, I hate that rule. You know what I'm talking about? The oh, shot yeah. clock yeah. violation that they blew is what I'm talking about. So with Duke. this Kentucky team, one thing that interests me... Yeah, Duke, whatever. What about Duke? We can, we, can talk about that. we can talk about them in a second. But what interests me with this Kentucky team is how hard it is to remember these individual Kalapari coached teams even a couple years later because of the amount of roster turnover. And a 40-0 season would have given this team a kind of immortality um, where we would say like, okay, that was the Towns, Collie Stein, Harrison Twins, Euless, Booker team. I think I'm not going to be able to... R- I'm not, uh, that does help. But I'm not going to be able to rattle off those names like I just did in it year or two um and i can't uh, it's hard to remember which team was one with brandon knight which was the one with michael kidd gilchrist um you know the teams of a couple of one generation ago like we all know who was on the unlv team you know 20 years later you can say stacy ogman larry johnson anderson hunt greg anthony um it's just interesting to me that this was going to be a historic all-time great, unprecedented team, and then in a few years we won't be able to remember. We even should who force was these kids it. to stay in college so that we remember their names. They should defer their million-dollar paydays for our. That's, that's all I'm saying. That's all Josh is saying. 
what do you think of uh, Duke, Mike, since we, we have to talk about them? This Justice uh, Winslow. That they're, I'm interested in the Winslow, I've Sam already, Decker, clutch I already off. can't remember who's on Duke. <laughs> I can't believe how good they are. I remember uh, when they lost Suleiman. They didn't lose him. They kicked him off the team for horrible behavior. I, I said, well, they're done. I mean, okay. I didn't watch a ton of uh, college <laughs> basketball. I did watch them against St. John's. They seemed to struggle for a second and a half option. It seemed like without Suleiman, they would be done. And they just get better. A lot of Duke teams do get better as uh, the year goes on. And I do, you know, I defer to Las Vegas, who says it's a, uh, it's a, it's a pick em game. But in the history of these things where a team pulls off something monumental in semifinals, uh, you, you always have the discussion beforehand. Was that their national championship? As far as I can remember, guys, think of a counterexample. The team that does the monumental semifinal upset rolls. You know, the 1980 Olympic hockey team, 1991 Duke UNLV. Sample set mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There has been. No, but even like been Kansas in 1988. Yeah. I read that talk this morning. Can we mention one thing here? Nigel Hayes, stenographer, funny, ha ha. Prestidigitation, Caddy Wumpus. He's also a plaintiff in a lawsuit that has been filed against the NCAA by noted labor lawyer Jeff Kessler from New York seeking to create a free market for college athletes. He signed on to this lawsuit, obviously, while he was still an undergraduate. They've had to replace the plaintiffs because they need active athletes. He, there's a football player from Middle Tennessee and a football player from Clemson who've agreed to do this. And I think that demonstrates a tremendous amount of courage, frankly, on his part. Forced Wisconsin to issue a statement defending the NCAA, but also defending his right to free speech and behavior. He's been asked about this very little during the tournament. The Washington Post has a long piece this morning in which they question some of the basketball players about whether they deserve to be paid. And they didn't ask Nigel Hayes. So there's not a lot of recognition here. So this this guy actually has, I think, some tremendous, you know, great, seems like he has a great personality and great character, but he also has demonstrated some real, you know, moral thoughts and ideas here and being willing well, to- Well, Taylor Branch in his Atlantic cover story mentioned the, I don't think he proved it out, but the claim rumor that a team about 20 years ago threatened to walk out, almost walked out mm-hmm. of a game before the Final Four to protest- the whole NCAA thing. So, um, you know, come what on, Nigel, show some, show some gumption. Now, um, he didn't say what team it was. Maybe his Kessler. words will be like antitrust, <laughs> <laughs> restraint of trade. Yeah. At his next press conference. Yeah. Well, I guess Shabazz Napier after the championship sure. game last year. Right after the championship game. Mentioned not being able to eat. So maybe Nigel Hayes will have a nice post game speech if Wisconsin does win. But, but he turned it into the Hungry Huskies. Will they be the uh, the what badgers? The barrister badgers. The, oh, yeah, the barrister badges because they're suing. Very good. On Sunday night at Wrigley Field, fans reportedly resorted to peeing in plastic cups because there were only two working bathrooms on the main stadium concourse due to ongoing stadium renovations. A reader also reported to Deadspin that the concession stands ran out of everything but french fries. But for Cubs fans craving a sense of normalcy as the 2015 Major League Baseball season began, at least they got to witness a season-opening loss to the St. Louis Cardinals. If everything else was going wrong at Wrigley Field, at least the product on the field was about, uh, about normal for Cubs fans. But one game is only one game. It seems plausible that Cubs fans won't have to wait till next year to urinate or to see their team in the World Series. 
Over the weekend, ESPN's Buster only wrote a fictional account of the Cubs winning the title for the first time since 1908. First baseman Anthony Rizzo squeezing the final throw from Starlin Castro. The Sporting News, too, has predicted that the Cubs will win the World Series, and the Sporting News exists. That's important to note. Um, Though the odds makers prefer the Washington Nationals with their formidable starting rotation. Two different team-building strategies there. The Nationals have, um, they signed Max Scherzer in the offseason. They have um, what seems like the best starting rotation in the game. The Cubs have rebuilt uh, under Theo Epstein, the former Red Sox GM, building up their minor league system to one of the best, probably the best in the sport in the last few years. But that's uh, the good thing about baseball, uh, Mike, right? That you can have all these different strategies. You have the Padres trying to sign every player on earth. And we go into the season with uh, many different teams of many different strategies having hope for the new season. It is both the good thing about baseball and I think the bad thing, though you could argue me out of my curmudgeonliness, but in this era when 88 wins gets you into the playoffs and the difference between 88 wins and 82 wins is six wins, but it's really kind of luck-based, yeah, do something to try to get in the postseason and then win a championship because, you know, we know about baseball not being a high-variance sport and therefore a lot of randomness happens in the postseason. I don't know. Hope does spring eternal, and yet it also springs random. And I know this is popular, and I know that fans of the Padres and Mariners and Cubs have reason to hope, and that's good, but it does seem that the structure of the game is a little bit weird and much different from football, basketball, hockey, all the other sports where they either play a lot of games or each game kind of does come down to uh, the team that's played better in the game. Uh, That's what I love about this sport. And I'm frankly not so up in traditional arms over the fact that 88 wins get you in the playoffs and maybe gets you to the World Series. And maybe like last year, both teams get to the World Series with what was it, 88 or 89 or fewer wins. You know, we are so accustomed to talking about trends in baseball you know, from particularly starting with Billy Bean and Oakland more than a decade ago now. And the trend that we are in now is how do you adjust to an era in which pitching has become so dominant and the technology and science of pitching has become so sophisticated that teams have been able to create pitchers, more of them, that can throw extremely hard for longer periods during the game in which batters don't have time to adjust. Tom Berducci has a nice piece in Sports Illustrated uh, this past week examining this phenomenon. And the description I really liked was that pitching has changed so much that effectively batters have less time to determine what kind of a pitch is coming. Um, So for the first 30 feet after a ball is thrown, it looks the same, whether it's a two-seam fastball or a four-seam fastball or a cutter. And that reduces the time. So batters have no way to change the way they behave. And that's why we're in such a pitching-dominated era. Is that a bad thing, Josh? Is that an okay thing? Or is that just another cyclical change in this sport? Well, I think that it's um, perfectly fine from a fan enjoyment perspective. It doesn't necessarily bother me that there aren't as many home runs, and I don't think it particularly bothers fans of teams so long as their team is winning. Baseball is such a local sport, and I think the reason that fans go out to the ballpark is to see a team that's competitive and that wins games, not necessarily um, you know, a team that 
you know, hits. Scores a lot of runs. Scores a lot of runs or hits a lot of home runs. But what I think is interesting is how this reality, this trend manifests itself in terms of team building strategy. And you have the Nats who have built this kind of super rotation. Um, and there's an interesting piece on Grantland, Rainey, Gisele, on whether it's overkill to put together a team that's this good, given um, the reality of 80-something wins getting you into the playoffs. Is it, does it make economic sense to spend this money on a Scherzer when you already have a great rotation? But, you know, the economics of, of the game and the way that they influence team building, those have been like two of the bigger stories in the offseason. You have the Chris Bryant situation in Chicago where um, he hits nine home runs in spring training. Um, Power hitting third baseman, best prospect in the system, et cetera, and, et cetera. And they send him down and Epstein lies. Theo Epstein, the president of the Cubs, lies saying we're sending him down for you know, quote, the quote-unquote baseball reasons when they're doing it for cost control because due to a collectively bargained agreement with the players, you know, you have to have a certain amount of service time to be a free agent. So it's in the Cubs' long-term interest, if not their short-term interest, to have this guy start in the minor leagues. Then they can keep his services for a year longer later in his career when he's going to be this super talented player. And then you have the Angels with Josh Hamilton, a guy who makes more than $20 million a year, formerly great player, not so great anymore, relapsed with alcohol and cocaine, and Major League Baseball is not suspending him for that. And the Angels are pissed. They're coming out and saying, how can you... These are like official statements, not like back-channel anonymous quotes yeah. saying, we we can't wrong. believe <laughs> that he's not being suspended because they want to save the money on his contract. Yeah. It's not because they have a strong stance against drug and alcohol. They have a strong stance against paying a guy who resorted to drug and alcohol. This is why, by the way, I mean, the rule should just be uh, you, you can't save the money. No, they actually, have, Mike, they actually have a strong stance against a guy whose production has declined so pre- precipitously that he's not probably even worth keeping in their lineup, potentially. And this is an excuse. Right. I mean, it's You'd the, a, it's the A-Rod argument. Right. The them. Yankees didn't yeah. want to pay A-Rod, and they argued against him, too. Right. And all those all those suspensions should be, be it should the team should have to pay it to someone. But you know, Cubs fans actually their interests should be aligned with Theo Epstein. It's not like Theo Epstein is screwing the Cubs. He's mortgaging the short term for the long term, and that's the wise thing and to do. And it's not even I that much of a mortgage, is it? It's like two weeks that he has to stay in yeah. the minors before he'd be denied a full year of service. Maybe a little, maybe yeah, a little bit longer. Stay, then they'll keep him a little, a little longer and just to, you know, make it seem that it's not quite mm-hmm. so crass. But of course it is so crass. But in the, uh, that's the good thing about the 162 game season. You know, you could, you could make up for that. It's the good, I guess this is the good thing about the 88 games will get you a wild card bid. You know, last year the Royals were this mediocre 500 team. Then they went on a good run. So the Cubs, if they're as good as we think they are, will be fine even without KB. And then he'll uh, be able to come up. I wonder, I'm very interested to see the uh, Padres lineup is an interesting thing to me because they've always had the worst offense because they play in this ridiculously big park. I mean, I like the fact that different ballparks have different dimensions, but this park's just too big and it so it, it changes the game. The game's just different there than it is everywhere else. There are big parks, there are little parks, and there are Petco. And I kind of wonder what it's going to do. I'm always fascinated to see what it does to hitters beyond just, you know, make their production at home dip a little 
little bit or as much as the visiting Does it harm players. them psychologically? It does. I think it does. I think if you look at the road numbers of even like Adrian Gonzalez and a bunch of guys, well, maybe he's the one exception, but a bunch of guys. Definitely the pitching numbers seem to do pitchers do great in Petco, but then they kind of carry that momentum and do great on the road. So the Padres are really, okay, fine. I won't say it's bad. It's good. It's a big difference in park factor, and that's a another charming quirk of baseball. Um, back to your point about, though, the pitcher, uh, mm-hmm. Stefan, you were saying that the pitchers are so much better, and the big thing is that uh, batters have a slow reaction time. There's a bunch of things, and some of it's really smart. Like, curveballs are out, but spinning um, split fingers are in or slur- not, slurves are out and cutters are in. They're, they're realizing, and this is good, there's a triumph of intellect, they're realizing that having the ball move a lot isn't as important as having the pit batters be able to recognize the ball. So if a splitter like Mario Mariano Rivera is the best in the game, it's not that it broke so much, it was that it was indistinguishable from a splitter that didn't break right. a lot. And so this makes it harder and harder on the pitchers. And then they talked about uh, Koji Uihara's ball which spins at some ridiculous rate like of speed and they can hundred revolutions per minute or yeah, something. Yeah, but it, right? yeah, it was like thirteen hundred and thirteen hundred and eleven right. revolutions. Like they can't like come on. Come on. You gotta be off by four or five. But it's just fascinating stuff. And um I had this inkling was the steroid era suppressing this knowledge? Was it just like, oh, what's the point? These guys are so huge. We're, we don't care. You can't even get into the subtleties of how much a ball is spun. I mean, baseball can be appreciated on so many levels. And this like very fine kinetic level, I think, is a fascinating aspect of the game. So the question with that is, with uh, Tommy John surgeries, the, the numbers increasing as much as they are, is there not as much of an incentive for teams to keep individual pitchers healthy because they're able to create so much pitching talent and because pitching isn't particularly scarce in this pitching-friendly era. And if that's so, then as an individual pitcher, how much do you think or what what should you do to know that you know, you're just another cog uh, for a team and you'll just be replaced by somebody else? Maybe you have to take more ownership of your health and your career and think that the team's not going to be looking out for you. But it does seem that the corollary to the increase in velocity is the improvement in kinesiology, in the ability to protect and defend pitching arms from a younger age. The guy that Tom Verducci profiled in SI, Ron Wolferth, his entire training program is geared toward understanding release points, flexion points, the the distance that the arm goes back, the elevation of the elbow before and after release. I mean, it, it's all about protecting the health of younger pitchers. And, and part of the reason I think that the mass of pitching has gotten better is because of these kinds of techniques. The outliers are the guys that get injured. It, even though when The guys who get injured are outliers? Well, they're always outliers because more people are not getting injured than aren't. But yeah, there are more injuries, but we're also seeing... I mean, there are more of these catastrophic type injuries, but I think a lot of people believe that that has to do with the fact that, that, that science had not caught up five years ago, eight years ago, ten years ago. So the, as kids grew through their teen years and through college, that's when they were creating the damage that manifests itself in their early 20s, early to mid 20s. Yeah, I don't buy that at all. I think it's that they're, I think that it's they're throwing harder and we're going to see we're in this permanent era. Kirsch, everyone's going to get hurt. I mean, Kershaw is going to get hurt. Sal's going to get hurt. And it's one of the things keeping the game from being popular. Hitters will play for years and years. 
years, but pitcher shelf life. I mean, I could read you all these past Cy Young award, you know, first, second, third place guys were out of the game within two years. They weren't old, you know, Brandon Webb. They just had these injuries going to happen over and over again. And Don't you why, also think that yeah. the science is going to get better and the medicine is going to get better so that we can predict well, and help prevent these kinds of injuries? Or is the emphasis on velocity so great? I think the torque and the strain you put on the body, I mean, they can do some things to mitigate it. But, you know, all the teams find pitch count is inexact, but I don't think you're going to find the perfect release point to stop the fact that your shoulder Mm -hmm. shouldn't be doing that as hard as that for as long. All right, let's end the conversation there, having solved the pitcher injury problem. And we'll solve the hitting problem another day. We'll solve we'll solve that another day. Um, let's move on to our last topic, which is um, if you've been watching the NCAA tournament for the last few weeks, you probably heard this a time or 60. The man who wrote that, which has been on the air since 1993, is Bob Christensen. In a piece last week on Slate, Eric Malinowski described him as the John Williams of TV sports theme composition, a man who, by his count, has written more than two dozen sports theme tunes, including ones for the World Cup, the Super Bowl, and the Olympics, in addition to his work on TV shows like Game of Thrones and Sex and the City. Bob, it's great to have you. It's good to be here. So tell us about that CBS NCAA theme song, um, how it came to be, and whether you write for a particular sport. Are you thinking, like, I need a sports song, or are you thinking, I need a basketball tune? Things have changed over the past 20 years. Uh, Sports themes used to be much more different from each other than they are now in terms of style. Um, back when I wrote uh, the basketball theme, it, it, it stylistically CBS wanted something very different than football, very different than golf. You know, very different, obviously, from like the Masters. Uh, they wanted something really different. These stylistically, sports have become more homogenous these days, and you can they're sort of interchangeable. But um, I, I wrote this back in about 1992 um, for a man named Doug Tuey, uh, who sadly is no longer with us, but he was one of the guys up at CBS who was sort of like the soul of the CBS sports, great, great, great friend. And um, he liked my music. And uh, anytime they needed a new theme, whether it be football or, or baseball or ice wars or whatever, they would, uh, uh, Doug would decide between three or four or five composers who he would throw the job open to to compete on. And uh, I competed, at, I don't know, probably against five other music houses. And he usually gave about a week to get it all together. And even back in those days, it was not just talking about piano uh, demos. You would have to do like full up thing, uh, full up demo version of it with brass and the whole the whole thing, just exactly how it would sound on television. So whenever I got these jobs, it, uh, I tried to write as many as I could within the span of the time I had, as I'm sure all the other composers that were competing for it did because we all wanted to win it. Um, but it, at the end of the day, it comes down to whether, uh, you know, the guys up at CBS Sports happen to like the three or four notes or five notes or six notes that comprise the motif of uh, your theme that repeated itself during, uh, you know, the piece. 
And if that caught their attention and everybody agreed on it, then you got the gig. So what are you going for with from sport to sport? How does it differ in terms of like mood, emotion, content, scoring, arrangement? I mean, how do you sort of decide? Is it just a jingle pops into your head or are you thinking basketball deserves this, whereas hockey gets that or soccer needs this? It's usually not any of those above. It, it, it used to be, like I said, it used to be more of a differentiation, like you would never do you know, really, really hard rock for basketball. That was reserved for football and hockey. You know, nor would you do really hard rock for, for golf. But that's changed. Fox came along and sort of changed all that by using you know, heavy you know, guitar-centric rock on everything. Um, so there, there's much less of a differentiation in, in orchestration. Personally, I like hearing different styles for different sports. Um, basketball seems to be more rhythmic, uh, more uh, uh, um, R&B, more up, more faster than, let's say, uh, football, which is more uh, gladiator, much you know, uh, a little bit slower. You know that that would to me have much more heavy guitars and that kind of stuff. But that's just that's just me. When we first did the theme, I um, not the version that they're, they're using now, but the first time I uh, I wrote it and arranged it, I actually had the sound of a basketball in with the rhythm track. So uh, as I did when I wrote the uh, uh, NHL uh, theme for uh, ESPN and ABC, I actually went up to Buffalo and, and recorded a whole bunch of uh, hockey sounds that happened during the game. Um, and put those in the rhythm track, so it became you know part of the the whole groove. But uh, uh, it, it all comes down to the theme. Did they stay in, or did they strip them out in the final? Uh, in the original, Park. they stayed in. Yeah. In the original, they, they stayed in both for ABC and and um, ESPN. Which it's funny, I actually got the the gig uh, to do both of them at the same time. And this was right after you know uh, uh, since there is no ABC Sports anymore. It's basically uh, ESPN doing you know all the production for them, and I had to come up with two different themes, but it was great, you know, uh, and I got to use the sounds for both of them. I tend to think with things like your work, uh, what we regard as the classics sometimes are because the work itself is good. Usually to become a classic song, it can't be bad, but it's often because it's just been going on for so long and is ingrained in our memories. But what do, what do the experts think of as, you know, the, oh, let's say the gold standard, the Johnny's theme, the transcendent uh, songs, theme songs of the sports uh, theme song genre? Well, if you, if you mention uh, sports themes, you, the number one uh, theme that people would probably say is one that I didn't write, which is uh, ESPN Sports Center, only because that thing is mm-hmm. on you know, 12 times a day, every day. And you hear the ba da 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 I mean, is that good? Is that even good from a professional ear, or is that just familiar? It, it's both. It's both good and bad. It's, it's good because, it, like, for the NCAA, uh, my, my theme for the NCAA, it, it, the fact that they've been using it so long has become uh, entwined with the sport, that the theme and the sport have become one, and, and it's become real estate for them. It's become valuable to them, to which I am eternally grateful, believe me, you know, to have, to have a theme uh, being listened to by so many people and, and have that particular theme known by so many people is, you know, it's a wonderful There's thing. There's something Pavlovian about it. Like, I can definitely... Oh, I yeah. Can, <laughs> I can remember, like, well, you know, 
for this NCAA tournament, for example, when you hear those notes come on, you get you get excited, you know, just as you do when, you know, you see the opening tip. It gets you primed for the event in a way that's kind of unique in television, these sports themes and and the way that they that they work on their brains. It's hard to think of of something comparable. Oh, a- absolutely. I was watching the news on, on CBS a couple of days ago, and one of the anchors on, on the morning show, the one between 7 and 9, um, they were talking about you know the Final Four and stuff like that, and, and um, they, the, the, the music came on, and one of the, the anchors said, oh, I love that music. And it, so you're right, it is pebble of and You hear those notes, you go, ah, basketball. <laughs> or, ah, Carrie's going to get splashed by a bus, because you also wrote the Sex and the City theme song. No, I, I didn't write the theme song. Uh-huh. Uh, they, uh, I, what I did is I did a lot of underscoring for the show. Yeah. I, I did about uh, between 65 and 70 pieces of music that they used um, uh, from like the second to the sixth season. Where do you stand on theme songs, the decline of theme songs, TV theme songs with lyrics? Uh, it's, us- it's, it's even crept into sports. I mean, there used to be many more songs with lyrics, and I guess now that Bo Cephas and Are You Ready for Some Football has been stripped, or or all my f- rowdy friends are coming around on Monday night, whatever version of that he did. But are you an anti-lyrics uh, to a theme song guy? Not necessarily. Uh, what uh, what I, uh, um, I'm not particularly happy about is that the theme songs in particular for any shows, not just sports shows, but for any shows, have gone from a minute long to 45 seconds to 30 seconds to 10 seconds to now it's like five seconds. You know, if you, if, you, if you watch the blacklist, their theme is just a bunch of sound effects and a couple notes, you know, in the beginning. That's it. Boom. As compared to, let's say, House of Cards, which is a really great theme, uh, um, and it goes on for... It's a minute, minute and actually 40 seconds, because after watching the first, like, 10 episodes of the show, you know exactly where to fast forward on <laughs> to get to the start of the show. No offense to the theme song, everybody. It's great that the producers and directors thought enough about the music to say, let's make a statement up here with the theme. What influences do you think are especially important for sports theme music writers? I mean, is it NFL films of the 1960s and the sort of swelling orchestration to sort of dramatize particular moments? Or is it more, you know, jingle based? I think it's NFL films, but I think NFL films was probably what it comes down to is... Aaron Copeland's fanfare for the common man. I mean, that, that, is, that is the granddaddy of all sports teams, especially the way it was done by Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. I mean, that, that, <laughs> with that, with that groove it. and that ba-ba-ba, ba-ba-ba, you know, and the dun 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 The number of times I borrowed from that, let's say, is amazing.
I have a million-dollar idea for you, Bob. Bob Christensen performs his sports themes a cappella. <laughs> it's really fun to hear you do. Can you uh, do the MLB on CBS? We'll, we'll put in a clip here so people can hear it. But I also want to hear your rendition, because when I asked you what are some that you're most proud of, you mentioned this, um, you know, theme song for CBS Baseball from the from the 90s. So I'd like to hear your your rendition of that one. Well, that one I can remember. I hope I don't embarrass myself with the other ones. But the, uh, yeah, CBS, it was dun, 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 ba-da-dum, dun, 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 dun. People remember that one particularly fondly. In the piece by Eric Malinowski, you very modestly said, you know, it's just luck and who can say. But do you feel like um, you can articulate why that one or why any of your tunes resonates or is successful? Or is 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 it really honestly just luck and voodoo? Or do you know when you or do you know when you've composed one that this one is going to stick? You never do, and which is why I, I usually try to write, when I'm competing for a theme, I usually try to write at least four or five of them. Uh, and I, what I try to do is, one or two of them try to push the envelope of where I think they might want it to go, and then I'll do one or two where I think they'll, they would feel comfortable uh, picking that particular style or that particular type of melody. And it's all over the place. Sometimes they'll pick you know, something that's way out in left field, and sometimes they'll pick something that's comfortable. It, it, it really is luck. It's, it's, it's having what my friend, uh, friends of mine call the right earworm <laughs> that will hit these people at the same time and go, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's what I want to hear. And it, has, it really does have nothing to do with anything except, except luck. I have done enough of these that I, I kind of know what works and what doesn't a good part of the time. Uh, having said that, there have been quite a few competitions that I haven't won where I thought, wow, I, that was great stuff I wrote, but I just didn't get them at that particular day. If it was played for them another day, they might have picked it. It, it really does come down to dumb luck. It really does. All right, final it, question for you. What do you think of One Shining Moment? Oh, it's a great song. It's a great song. And I, I love the fact that they, they, they haven't done just one rendition of it, that they keep you know, getting stars and keep doing different arrangements of it. And David's a wonderful writer. Uh, he's a friend. And that song has been as, as, as good to him as the NCAA theme has been to me. And uh, we're, we're both lucky. Is there, is there like a fraternity of, uh, of sports theme show writers? Do you and John Colby, the guy that wrote uh, the ESPN Sports Center theme, get together once in a while and just sort of sing at each other? I, I'm embarrassed to say I've never met John. <laughs> and he, and he, uh, he he had a studio in New York City for a long time, but no, we 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 don't get together. We probably should. <laughs> All right, we'll broker that for for another episode. I think that could be a uh, that should be a documentary. It could be. It should be. Absolutely, that would be fun. All right, Bob. Well, uh, we appreciate you uh, being here, and now everyone can think of you every time the the NCAA tournament. Begins what should we, what should we do for an for an outro here? What, what which uh, which theme song do you think we should play, Bob? Well, what do you got up there? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna play one from your sports reel, and you can tell us which one this is. 
Oh, that's um, ESPN uh, Weekly Golf. Weekly Golf. I'm feeling Weekly Golf. I feel like... uh... Curtis Strange, uh, pro shot on 13. Oh, my God. Now, if you listen, if you listen to the uh, championship golf, it's basically based on the same theme, but a totally different groove. It's much more orchestral. And then I had to do one for, um, uh, I, I think it was the St. Andrews, uh, something that they were broadcasting. And so I literally had to take that theme and, and do like a, um, a, a tattoo version of it with, with bagpipes and, and field drums and everything. So it's, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Because <laughs> bagpipes only play in one key, by the way. It's not like you can transpose them. All right. Stefan is insisting that I play one more because we're having too much fun with this. All right. Last one. Here we go. That's ESPN Olympic Trials. That feels very Olympic. I can feel the agony and the thrill approaching. Yeah. <laughs> that that we actually did with the real orchestra back in the days when we were using real orchestras. We we recorded that in England, and that was about an eighty-piece orchestra. It was a lot of fun. I went over there with uh, Jed Drake from ESPN, and and we had a lot of fun. Doing All right, that. Bob, we're just going to call you back at just random intervals and play songs for you. And, <laughs> this is too much. This is too much fun. But thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. Bob Christensen is a composer who uh, has done the NCAA tournament theme for CBS among more than two dozen sports theme tunes. Now it's time for the after balls. We're going to get to this in a minute um, in our bonus segment for the the Slate Plusers, but this is too good to um, you know not not bring to the whole audience in polo. Each of the uh, innings, or however you want to term it, periods, quarters, whatever, is called a chucker. And that's not, you might be thinking, that's not that. That's not that interesting. What if I told you that chucker was spelled with two Ks? Have I changed your mind? I also see a C-H-U-K-K-A spelling. Well, that's, that's even better. I know. But you know what the other term I like from polo that I just found? What's that? Is for a polo pony, a made pony. It's like the p- ponies are in the mafia. <laughs> Oh, I thought it was more like in the shade. (laughs) Um, Mike, what is your chucker? Well, I would like to talk about the 30th anniversary of a great sports movie. Unfortunately, the movie came out in 86. So it's not the 30th anniversary, (laughs) but here's the peg. The finals of the NCAA are in Indianapolis. And you know what else was in Indianapolis? The finals of the 1954 fictional boys high school championship. Off the record, I got to say, you guys are the best thing ever to happen to Indiana basketball. So I started showing my son six and seven Hoosiers. I think the best sports movie ever, I would say Hoosiers, The Natural, and Rocky in that order. Maybe Rocky's not a sports movie. I've shown I haven't shown them the natural yet. I've shown them Karate Kid, Rocky. Rocky has a couple of really inappropriate scenes for kids, but since every other scene plays really well for six and seven year olds, they will not get the fact that Paulie is upset that his sister's not a virgin anymore. (laughs) Anyway, Hoosiers was so fantastic. My youngest son is on the couch bouncing up and down going, Hickory, Hickory, Hickory. Okay, what is the nickname of Hickory's team, guys? Do you remember? Oh, oh it is a state nickname, and it is it is uh, alliterative. Not the Hoosiers. No, nope, it is a different state nickname. <sighs> stomped. Yeah, we're stomped. 
The Huskers. They're the Hickory Huskers. And I've watched this movie many times. In fact, by the time I showed it to them, I, I probably watched it 10 times. And I knew some things that I will now share to the audience, but I learned some new things. One is that in the final game, every single shot is accounted for. So if you look at the scoreboard, they explicitly fla- flash to the scoreboard at times. Every single shot. Now, sometimes there's just a montage of made basket, made basket, made basket, and you have to correctly assign who those go to. But the score is always reflective of something that shows up on screen. That, to me, is amazing. Another fact is that every flag in the movie is hung wrong. The field of uh, blue, this... The field of blue is on the right-hand side, and it's supposed to be hung with the left. And I don't know why. I don't know if this was an Indiana thing, or it could be a mistake, because as I said, the movie's supposed to take place in 1954, but there is a map of the United States in one of the scenes, and Hawaii is in the map. Of course, Hawaii did not join the Union until 1959. But here is the new thing, because I'm as I'm watching the movie, I kind of noticed that, do you guys remember the best player on the Hickory Huskers? Jimmy Chitwood. Yeah, Jimmy Chitwood. Now... You know, technically, Jimmy Chitwood doesn't have the third biggest part in the movie or the fourth bit, right? You think of, I mean, Best Supporting Actor nominee for an Oscar, Dennis Hopper, uh, big role. And, of course, as Coach Norman Dale, Hackman had a big role. And then the the uh, simmering love interest, this is the worst thing about the movie, the uh, Barbara mm-hmm. Hershey love interest where they maybe held hands in barn coats. Okay, fine. She has the third or fourth. I was going to ask if your kids <laughs> demanded that you just fast forward to all the Barbara Hershey scenes. Like, get rid of this basketball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just this smoldering love tension between them. So, so Hackman, awesome. Hershey. I will now, but this is the thing. So I, Jimmy Chitwood had a pretty big role. He turns the movie around twice. He is the turning point of the movie, and he's almost a MacGuffin. I mean, he's there, but he's there all but symbolically. I don't know if it was the fact that the guy who played Jimmy Chitwood was just not a good actor. I kind of tend to think, and I'm going to buy the book on Hoosiers, maybe they'll sidestep this and not want to admit that uh, uh, that he was a not great actor, but I think that it was symbolic. I mean, Gene Hackman has a huge scene with Maris Valenus where Valenus does not miss a shot, but he also doesn't speak a word. If you remember that scene where Gene Hackman tells him, I don't care if you don't play basketball, it's all Gene Hackman. And Valenus's contribution is just hitting every shot. Jimmy Chitwood doesn't miss. So here now are Jimmy Chitwood's entire, the, this is every line he says in the movie. I got something to say. It's about time for me to start playing ball again. Actually, it's more like I've been thinking about it. It's about time for me to start playing ball again. One more thing. Coach stays, I stay. Coach goes, I go. And I can make it. That's it. That's all <laughs> Jimmy Chitwood says in the, the movie. Boo Radley of Hoosiers. But Boo Radley didn't decide to, you know, join on the defense team to uh, win the case oh, for Oh, but Atticus. he very much did join on the defense of, of, of Scout. Yes. So that's good. Okay. So he's he's the Boo Radley. We need to name a Radley-type MacGuffin for uh, the Chitwood character. Two other facts that uh, tell you a little bit about the real-life feel-good story of the guys who played them. One is the fact that one of the players, one of the players on the team, the guy, the, the, uh, the guy who says, you know, let's do this for all the small schools out there who never got a chance, he, he actually committed suicide uh, when he was 39 years old, and he was a very good basketball player and there's that part about where uh barbara hershey's character says i don't want to play basketball to be one of these guys who can only try to recapture his old glory i thought of that when i thought about that story the the two other facts about some of the guys who played on the team uh brad long who played buddy walker he played college basketball for southwestern college and i only mention that because southwestern college the kansas collegiate athletic conference champions of 1985 when he played the mound builders 
They're the mound builders. But another guy, Steve Holler, who played Raid Butcher, Steve Holler went to DePaul University and there was a case about him being in this sports movie because they can't be paid for playing sports, obviously, the NCAA. And I think Steve Holler quite adequately he said, um, I'm acting in a movie. I'm not playing sports. And I don't know if this is true, but it's been widely reported. It's on the Wikipedia page. I will just read this verbatim. This was the NCAA was very mad at Steve Holler for being in this movie as a basketball player. As penance, Holler was suspended for three games and required to give DePaul 5% of his movie earnings. Don't worry. It was Holler's first and last acting role. He is now a dentist in Warsaw, Indiana. <laughs> you know, a few years ago, Mike, the Harvard Sports Analysis Collective, Collective did an analysis of Hoosiers. Jimmy Chitwig, in the uh-huh. course of the movie, yeah. Jimmy was yeah. 20 for 23 from the field, 40 points, two assists, three steals. He accounted for 40 out of 90 points shown being scored by the Huskers. Oh, yeah. And remember, he didn't even play the first three right. games. So that actually, yeah, in terms of usage statistics, that actually seems spot yeah, on. I think they came up with a net rating of 112 for Jimmy. The other weird thing is that I love the movie. You love Norman Dell. Terrible coach. Like in real life, he'd be the guy that we just decried all the time for punching a kid and thinking the kids were in the military and not allowing any freedom of motion. God, he's, he's everything we hate. And yet he's everything we love fictionalized. Uh, All right, Stefan, what is your chucker? Well, the most dominant team in college sports recruits a bench full of top-rated high schoolers. It sees some of its stars turn pro long before they get their mortarboard and tassel. Has a coach who unapologetically exploits the system and gets paid handsomely for the work. And I speak not of the University of Kentucky and John Calipari, but of the unstoppable chess team of Webster University in St. Louis and its coach, Susan Polgar, who last week did not lose the Final Four like Calipari's bunch. Instead, they won their third straight national championship, the President's Cup, which is better known as the Final Four of Chess. The Final Four of Chess is informally known as the Final Four of Chess because if it were, the NCAA's lawyers would be sending cease and desist letters by the dozen. But Polgar has built a wooden-esque legacy in college college chess while courting Calipari, Patino, Huggins type controversy for program building tactics that just like in the NCAA have triggered concerns about an arms race that is distorting the purpose and value of college extracurricular activities. Polgar is a chess grandmaster, four-time women's world champion, one of the famous Hungarian-born glass chessboard shattering Polgar sisters. In 2007, after retiring from competition, Polgar was hired by Texas Tech and formed the Susan Polgar Institute for Chess Excellence. That would be SPICE. Texas Tech was unranked at the time. In 2010, it won its first national championship. It repeated in 2011, uh, knocking off perennial power, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, which had won a bunch of Final Fours in the, uh, earlier in the 2000s. But Polgar wasn't happy. She felt Texas Tech wasn't offering enough in the way of scholarships, salaries, and other resources. According to a story by Jason Fagone in Wired Magazine in the summer of 2011, Polgar was invited to St. Louis by Division III Webster's Yugoslav-born chess-loving provost. St. Louis was emerging as a chess hotbed. Chess was proving to be a good recruiting and promotional tool for the few schools that were investing in it. 
coincidentally or not. In late 2011, the Webster student newspaper reported Polgar gave Texas Tech a list of demands, including a $250,000 salary for her, $150,000 salary for her husband, who's also a one-time chess prodigy and coach, and funding for 34 full and partial scholarships, a tenfold increase in tuition funding. The total package amounted to more than a million dollars annually. Texas Tech went on to win another Final Four, but the university rejected Polgar's demands, so she packed up her spice and moved to Webster. Eight of Polgar's Texas Tech players transferred with her. They didn't have to sit out a year, as they would have in NCAA basketball or football. Webster won the Final Four in 2013 and 2014, and last week in New York in the round-robin tournament, Webster crushed. It beat UMBC three-and-a-half to a half, the University of Texas-Dallas three-and-a-half to a half, and Polgar's former team, Texas Tech, three-to-one. Webster's 10-point total was a Final Four record. How has Polgar managed to five-peat? It's all about recruiting. Webster's lineup is like Kentucky's. The Gorlocks can send one wave after another of grandmasters to the board. This year's team had eight grandmasters from around the world. Only six can compete in the final four, so a bunch of them had to be benched. Plus, the Webster roster has even more masters on their way to grandmasterhood. Polgar's kind of like Nick Saban or Gino Oriema. She's stockpiling talent. Just maybe, just maybe to keep it from other schools. And like Calipari preparing his players for the NBA draft, Polgar says her chess players come to her for pre-professional training and they leave when they're ready. Filipino-born Wesley So came to Webster in the fall of 2012, ranked in the top 100 in the world. After two years on campus, he left to turn pro last fall, ranked in the top 10. Like her basketball and football coaching counterparts, Polgar talks a lot about commitment to academics, which is probably substantially easier to accomplish with chess geniuses than with Rivals.com prospects. No doubt another big recruiting tool is Webster's mascot, Mike, the Gorlock. Do you know about the Gorlock? Mythical creature with the paws of a cheetah, the horns of a buffalo, and the face of a St. Bernard. It's named for the intersection of two streets on campus. Students came up with it in a uh, in a contest back way back when. Let's go Gorlocks. Go Gorlocks. Josh, what's your chucker? Wesley So is now competing for the U.S. U.S.A. 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 Uh, it doesn't feel like that long ago, but it's now been nine years since the release of The Blindside, the book. It doesn't feel like it was nine years ago. No, no. Um, it's it's well, actually we like our. We like our 29th and 19th and 9th yeah, anniversaries here. On this is the 10th today. anniversary of The Blind Side. Um, it's now been six years since the movie of the same name cut out in theater. So also the 10th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, so we round, round that up. Uh, the book and the movie told the story of a young black man named Michael Lore who was taken in by a rich white family, then went on to play in the NFL. The movie made more than $300 million worldwide. Uh, Sandra Bullock, Oscar. Millions were inspired. She won an Oscar for that? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Just, yeah, she was sassy. She outsassed them all. Come on. Uh, millions inspired by this unique story of love and success forged across racial and economic lines. The Blind Side was not a unique story, Stefan. Back in 2010, I wrote a piece called The Other Blind Sides about how this same thing happened repeatedly in towns across America. The kids who are good at sports are often taken in by affluent families precisely because they're good at sports, that those kids are often black, the families are often white. For that piece, uh, Michael Lewis told me that in hindsight, perhaps it wasn't his amazing journalistic acumen that led him to the story of The Blind Side, that maybe he stumbled onto it because it happens so often. This is not to criticize Michael Lewis. That book is great. It's as good as the movie is bad. But five years 
after I wrote the story, I decided to Google the phrase blindside story to confirm that indeed it is still happening. Uh, Perhaps the most famous example that's come up in the last five years since I wrote my piece is um, that of Chicago Bulls all-star Jimmy Butler, black basketball star taken in by white family. Uh, The Sandra Bullock role here is a woman named uh, Michelle Lambert, who told ESPN.com that she had told uh, Butler he had to stay out of trouble, work hard in school, he had to set an example, and you know what? Jimmy did it. Anything I asked him to do, he did it without asking questions. In that same story, Butler said they accepted me into their family, and it wasn't because of basketball. She was just very loving. She just did stuff like that. I could not believe it. There's LaKendrick Ross, described as the blindside story of the 2014 NFL Supplemental Draft. Is that, is that official? <laughs> is the NFL Supplemental Draft as an official blindside story? It is, yeah. That's trademarked. He lived in 11 foster homes or group homes. He now plays on Dan Snyder's Washington football team. There's Isaza King, a high school football player in California, who was taken in by the Brunk family after he made friends with their son. The best part about that piece by John Lindblom in the Record B of California is that it says King, quote, makes young girls coo like pigeons in a church belfry. That has nothing to do with anything, but I just like that. A recurring feature of the blindside genre is that the participants always deny that their story is anything like the blindside. A lot of people say it's another blindside story, said the coach who took in a Florida football player named Jaquan Johnson, but it's not that. I didn't go out and see some poor kid struggling on the side of the road I didn't know. This kid was just always part of my family, and we've loved him. From a New York Times story on football player Tajidin Smith, this is not a blindside story. This is way deeper than that. And a piece on NFL player Jay Bromley. I did see the movie, me being me. I wouldn't call my story as bad as the blindside. Even though I wasn't raised by my biological parents and lived in the hood, it wasn't always bad. I can't sit there and say that. I had some loving parents and sisters the best they could, and I appreciated that. Michael Orr also insists his story wasn't a blindside story for the <laughs> it record. It way deeper. It he merited does. a 700-page book. Was so Although he says deeper. he's never read the book. So. But my favorite, favorite, favorite recent blindside story, which is not a blindside story, is that of Willie Cauley-Stein, the center for Kentucky. Uh, Collie Stein did not get along with his stepfather, so he moved in with his white grandparents in the small town of Spearville, Kansas. But that didn't work out either. So Collie Stein moved to Olathe, Kansas, where Will Shields, the black Kansas City Chiefs offensive lineman who was just elected to the Hall of Fame, became Collie Stein's legal guardian. So this is a double reverse, double blindside. Wow. So it's the yeah. basketball player taken in by a, by a football offensive lineman. He also lives with the white grandparents, does the reverse and goes to live with the black family who's rich. This story is like completely turned the not a blindside story, blindside story genre on its head for me. Stefan is Googling furiously right now to see if he can add something. No, just the, I'm wondering why Alathi, Kansas. And Willie Shields has recently been hired to run the Oakland A's front <laughs> office in a... <laughs> Dramatic twist. Yes. We'd love your feedback and what we talked about Willie today. Shields is now getting into speed trading. <laughs> you can email us. Willie Shields is now destabilizing the economy of Iceland. <laughs> you can email us at hangupitslate.com to learn more about the Michael Lewis oeuvre. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. 
When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. I thought I saw Willie Shields hanging out with Jonah Hill recently. Did you see that, Mike? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, check out our entire roster of podcasts. It's Will, not Willie. At <laughs> iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our producer is Mike Volo. Jonah calls him Willie. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer, executive producer, Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Will Shields just married an MTV DJ. <laughs> <laughs> Members on Beatty. Thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.